All right, here we go. Uh, uh, we have a like a class handout, and then we have the thing for next week too up on the counter over there. Um, the thing for next week is uh, two writings. Yep, they are. If you, the page numbers are kind of unique because in the the book I copied it out of. On the left side is all German. The right side's the English, so I only copied the, the right side. So, But it's two writings um, by two women. The first one is a kind of an argument against her brother on why she stayed in the convent. And then the other one is a different uh, woman who left the convent. And it's at, in the 1520s. And then the following week, we'll actually read... Again, uh, two women who, um, in the 1650s, so it's like 100 years after, you know, kind of the Reformation began, 140, and there still is uh, Lutherans in convents, and so it's very interesting to read these women talk about their life together. in the convent, so, and or why they left, so. Okay, which might not. I mean, we. I think we all think that if you became Lutheran, you, you couldn't be a nun. Well, that's actually not true. Yeah, it's not true. So, um, majority majority of the convents did close in Lutheran lands, um, but not all of them, and. Uh, so, I think it's kind of interesting. <laughs> we should maybe know about it. But does we have paganism? That's right. Yep, we do. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, I mean that's that's the that's one misconception is that deaconesses replaced nuns replaced nuns. That's actually not true either because deaconesses are scriptural. They're in First Timothy. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm, I've been trying to get Betsy Karkin, deaconess Betsy Karkin to uh, find a Friday where she could come and uh, teach a little something. Just a one-dayer. But um, she's, got a, you know, she's got a job so. <laughs> on Friday mornings. So actually, though, I think, I think what's going to happen is I have actually horse-traded with her. The main reason why she has to be on campus is because they have Friday morning chapel, and Betsy's in, like, in charge of the chapel, making sure the preachers come or students you know, are there to read and the singers are there. So I said to her, I, I, I could probably do that one day. So you could come out. So, well, she's not here now, though. Yeah, chapel, chapel, starts, chapel starts at 11. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, which means, you know, can't be here at 9.30. Okay. Arugula von Grimbach. We're going to start with just some basic reflections. Uh, Did you guys read the poems? Um, What do you think, Kathy? I thought it was like Twitter, very slow. Yes. (laughs) What do you mean? I, I don't have a Twitter book. I don't have an instant face or whatever it's called. Tick-tock. We think that what's going on on Twitter is... New? Yeah. Horrible, but it's 
if these people had had Twitter, it would have been just as bad. Comment, comment, comment. Oh, you just faster. All right, so just in case you didn't read the poems, which on a certain level is probably okay, based on what Kathy just said. Um, so a, a year after Argula wrote to the faculty of Ingolstadt University, uh, well, maybe not a year, it was some time after. There was an anonymous uh, public letter, poem written by Johannes Landshut. I think that's, I think that's what it is. Yeah, and um, it's it's pretty vulgar. Uh, you know, not only not only does he he question. Argula's scriptural interpretation, but he, he basically questions it because, A, she's a woman. And then, um, and then he starts just questioning her motives in general, which are really awful. Holy smokes. Um, they're just real bad. Let's put it that way. If you really want to be specific about it, you're going to have to go read it yourself. But it is over-the-top, inappropriate, like, like, I can't believe human beings talk that way to people. Which is very similar, I guess, to uh, Kathy, social media. People say some awful things to other people, right? Now, her response, though, Kathy, what do you think about her response? Uh, Well, it was better. (laughs) Yeah? Um, And she... uh, How was it better? Well, she didn't, she didn't, she called him like, well, you're hiding behind right. a fake persona, so yep. why don't you just come out and yeah. we'll talk about it. Yeah. So she was being reasonable. I think so. <laughs> Holly. She also said, you know, like, you're, if it was me you're arguing at or against, mm-hmm fine, you know, I would have left this alone, but it's got scripture that you're... Right. Twisting. Yeah, right. It's a pretty big slam. But she did it very... I felt like she was pretty gracious for what he wrote to her. I, I, I think she also... She never she never stooped to his level. No, no. Say a few things. Well, here's the thing, too. Is I, I think it's really great, because she uses uh, scripture and the Apocrypha, basically saying, men who act like you, get this. Um, well, you know, which, again, it's not, I mean, it's not vulgar, but it's threatening, yeah, I mean, it's, you know. So, uh, I think I already mentioned that, you know, Judith is a, a book from the Apocrypha, and she mentions that, and then she mentions Deborah, and uh, Jael, Jael, Jael's the one that, you know, threw the stake through the head. So one gets their head cut off, the other one gets a stake through the head. And Deborah just like kicks butt in general, right? Leads leads, you know, war or something. I can't remember what she picks out for Deborah specifically. Okay. So okay, yeah, right. So her main issue with this guy is not just her his, you know, awful misogynistic writing, it's his uh his writing undermines 
people's belief in the authority of Scripture. So it's not any different than what, you know, it's the, sa- it's the same sort of conversation that she started. And this is kind of interesting for us to think about is that, you know, she keeps really focused on the authority of Scripture and then her, her you know, authority to speak because of her baptism. Now, she doesn't necessarily say that specifically in the, the, the poem, like she doesn't talk about baptism, but she does talk about, she gives all these references to Joel chapter 2, and then in the book of Isaiah, where, you know, old people, young people, you know, women, they're all going to receive the Holy Spirit and, and then prophesy. Now, all that for us, we have to kind of maybe pick apart, but of course, who, everyone receives the Holy Spirit in, in baptism. And because the spirit is a confessing spirit, right, tongues of fire, it's a talking spirit, then it's part of the uh, M.O. of Christians then to speak what's been spoken to them. So she, again, she's not, she's not going to let go of that. And she brings up Matthew chapter 10 again, right? I mean, you notice that. So she never really leaves that fundamental point about Matthew 10, that she is obligated and behooved to confess Christ. Um, All right, now, within his gobbledygook of response, though, if the only parts that I, you know, you kind of try your best to take, like, seriously, is he tries to use scripture to, to, to say that she should be quiet, and obedient to her husband. Which, of course, in her... We're not going to talk about the second one because the second one, she's like, name a time and place where I haven't been a faithful wife. Right? And, and, and history would show. I mean, this is kind of the interesting thing is that she is a faithful wife and faithful mother. I mean, there's no... There's no questioning about that. So, you know, his argument really falls flat. Now, the other aspect, too, is that he never actually deals with the scripture that she, she, she's been talking about, which is really just frustrating, right? So she's talking about this here, and then he's, like, saying something over here, and they are not connected. So he brings up a First Timothy text, which she has never addressed, and, in fact, within the Timothy text which is about the order of um, the church, she, what she's doing doesn't even apply to the Timothy text. I mean, it's, it's such a, she's trying to take a text out of context in order to apply it to her. So, but the, the thing is, though, is that what happened to her kind of has happened to Lutheranism at this time. And that is um, the... From, from the kind of the, the, the papal side is this understanding that uh, where Luther uses the, the term the priesthood of the baptized, they think there's an annihilation of clergy and laity and everyone's the same. And, and of course, in the papal's minds, everyone's the same in terms of office or what, what happens in the church, then it'll just be kind of chaos. And so, again, that's a, that's a more serious reading of what his awful writing was. But uh, 
And that is, again, then the thing that I made, I brought up last week was, you know, we need to kind of think about how, how the church is organized because I, there's some very helpful, instructive things. Not, not completely the church is organized, but this understanding of what it means for everyone to have the Holy Spirit through baptism. And so, um, so yeah, so let's just kind of dive into that. Uh, so what, what the critique is, is this understanding of the priesthood of all believers. Again, Luther doesn't use that phrase, and, and it's not in the Bible, but Luther uses the priesthood of the baptized, which I think is more instructive, and we'll show how that is. So is, is this term priesthood of, the, of all believers in the, in the Bible? Not exactly, but it does come from 1 Peter chapter 2, 5, and 9, which actually comes from Exodus chapter 19, 5 through 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 15, or 19, 5 through 6. To give a little context to Exodus 19, Exodus 19 is at the end of the journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. So God has just uh, overcome the Egyptians, uh, the Egyptian gods, the Egyptian people, obviously the Egyptian pharaoh, and brought the people of God three days, or the third new moon, I'm sorry, third, uh, three months, um, to Mount Sinai. So it was a long trip. The, um, and, you know, along the way, of course, you, know, you have the Red Sea, you have the pillar of fire and cloud, you have the bread from heaven, the quail from heaven, the water from the rock, the defeat of the Amal- Amalekites, Jethro helping Moses, you know, overcome his burden. And so then you get to, the, to Mount Sinai. Now, we would have to remember, though, in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses met God at the burning bush, God makes some promises to Moses. And he says, go to, is, go to Egypt, bring my people to this mountain so that uh, they, they may worship me. And what God is doing is bringing... So what is his people? His people are slaves. They're not free. They aren't who they were meant to be. And from a religious aspect, and this is why Moses says to Pharaoh, let us, let us leave here because we can't worship our God in Egypt. And Moses is very nice to the Pharaohs because you would think it's an abomination. Well, it's actually because God needs a holy place and, and for, to worship God. In the Old Testament context, he would have to purify the land of Egypt which would be, I mean, catastrophic for the Egyptians. So it's a sign of mercy. Hey, let us go three days from here, worship God, and we'll, you know. So anyways, so he is, so God is redeeming his people. Those who weren't his people are now his people. And if you were in chapel, you, you might have heard that from the First uh, Peter chapter 2 reading, which technically actually comes from Hosea. I've already started something I didn't want to do. Uh, I'm going to try to talk linear rather than patchwork. But So within Exodus, you also have, you can't forget this, what happens in Hosea, which we'll talk about in a second. So, okay. So, God redeems his people. He cleanses them through the Red Sea. He feeds and nourishes them and then fights for them and brings them to Mount Sinai. 
Mount Sinai is important because it's just God and his people. It is a, uh, it's an, it's, it's, it's a return to Eden. And in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, um, well, 1 through 4, God, you know, we get the setting where we are, and then God says, hey, you know, you saw everything I did for you. Um, so then verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses says these words to the people, and ever the people say, yes, we will do what you say. Yes, we are. So there is a, uh, as I... <laughs> offhandedly said to the confirmation kids, it's like a marriage. They're getting married. They're like, what? Well, it's a, it's a covenant now. They're making promises. And the, the language of treasured possession is important. Now, we think of possession right, in, in very negative terms, but it's the simple phrase, I'm yours, you are mine. That's, that's treasured possession. That's, that's what's going on behind that phrase. And then the kingdom of, of uh, priests, a holy nation. Kingdom of priests, now this is what we're going to get into, but the priests are meant to be, meant to come into the presence of God. So there's no, there's, there's no barrier between the two. Intimacy. So, um, and then a holy nation, of course, the holy nation lives outwardly. So they're supposed to live in close relationship to God and then outwardly towards all the nations of the world. So the holy nation isn't inherently inwardly focused, but outwardly focused. Okay. So that's, that's what's going on here is in Exodus 19. Um, the book of Hosea, not that everyone's read Hosea or thinks about Hosea as much as I do, Hosea is a very interesting book. It's a, it's a small, short book. Uh, it's about a prophet named Hosea who God says to marry Gomer. Gomer happens to be a prostitute. She's not a very faithful wife. Okay. They have children. Uh, not great name children. Does uh, anybody know, anybody want to like Guess at the names of the, the children. One is. Yeah, you're not my people, and, and frankly, I don't love you. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, hopefully they had great counselors back then, but holy smokes, there's a lot of. I don't know what's up with that guy. Those two. Living your entire life, wondering if your parents are your parents, because they keep telling me I'm not your my, you know, my people. Um, yeah, uh, okay. So then, again, though, his chil- these children follow in the line of Gomer. Gomer goes off, but Hosea then redeems Gomer, saves her, and then says, hey, you're going to be my wife now. You're going to act like my wife. I'm going to be your husband. You're going to be my, my wife. And then his children go from not being my people and those who I, I don't have mercy on to you are my people, and I have mercy on you. 
So it's a radical change. But all that whole image then is Israel again, just applied to a personal relationship. Israel was slaved, enslaved, and then God saved them and brought them to him. Gomer was enslaved. Hosea brought her to him. And the people that you know, weren't part of the family now are, are part of the family of God. So, all right. So, again, this is important for us to kind of keep it in the back of the mind because it, it's, um, yeah, this is, well, that's just the way the Bible talks. So, the Lord speaks and the people of God say the same thing back to him. So, this is important. He promises, they promise. Priests are always in relationship with someone else. So, this is important is that the priests, so this kingdom of priests live in relationship to God and in relationship to the world. No, they never exist for themselves or for their own benefit. So, you know, they first to the Lord, then outside the covenant. Um, so the priestly kingdom draws near to God to do service for all the world. Now, amongst the priestly kingdom, there are people chosen um, in a specific way. So in Exodus 19, then Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. And then Moses goes up Mount Sinai to the darkness where God was, and then God starts talking to him about, hey, how's your life going to be established? So he talks about altars. Then he talks about, like, you know, kind of ways to handle slaves and, and uh, foreigners and, and just a variety of things. And then he gets into worship life, the tabernacle, and... and, and the altar of incense, the, 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 the main altar, the, the, the basin for washing, and, and then, of course, priest, priestly garments. So, um, and the thing is, is that, so, as this priestly nation is going to be a, drawing close to God and then being, you know, looking out towards the world, within that, then, too, everyone, you know, so if everyone's a priest, no one's a priest. Because, you know, there's no giving and receiving. Everyone just can give to themselves. But when you give to yourself, you know, is it really a gift? You have all these kind of complexities. So the thing is, is that the priests that were picked out of the kingdom of priests, they are, I use this word collateral, not collateral, but collateral with a hyphen. I'm not, I didn't make that word up, by the way. It, is, it, it does uh, get a squiggly red line if you type it out, but uh, uh, this was used in the Middle Ages. I got it from um, St. Alured of Revo. He uses that word. But um, So the two sorts of priests, the priestly nation and then the priests that serve in the tabernacle, they're collateral. They don't contradict each other, and one doesn't annihilate the other, and one's not above the other or below the other. They all are together working in this beautiful chart that I drew. Now, I, I, I printed out in black and white rather than color, but the, the arrow going from the Lord to the priestly kingdom to the non-priest, that's black, and then, and then the arrow going back to the Lord is blue, just because those are the two colored pens. I wanted to show those two different things going on. So the Lord blesses his people. He makes these people holy. 
And then, of course, they are going to be a holy nation. So they are this witness to God's presence in the world. Then this world that sees God's holiness, well, by nature of being drawn to God's holiness, I mean, whoa, then goes through the priestly kingdom to the Lord. So they, there's no, they can't, so the Lord's put himself inside the priestly kingdom in the center, and then they, so what, this is actually the same thing for the New Testament, same picture. This is Acts, this is Pentecost, or the Ascension, right? They start in Jerusalem, then they go to Samaria and Judea and all the ends of the earth. So it's the same picture. Arrows are just, just a little differently. But so, anyways, so this is what Exodus 19:5 is all about. So what do priests do? They draw near to God. They make sacrifices. But in the Old Testament, there's different kinds of sacrifices. There are the animal sacrifices, the ones that we usually normally think about. But then also prayer is a sacrifice. Um, so there are different sorts of sacrifices. And then be, be God's people to the world. That's what priests do. So these are kind of the functions of the priests. Um, and you see that in the sacrificial system. So uh, every Israelite draws near to God through the sacrifice, the blood of the, the, blood of the covenant or the blood of the lamb or the goat or the, the bull or, 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 or you know, whatever sacrifice they're participating in. And then also, too, every day, what would a, a Israelite do in the morning? Recite the Shema, right? The, um, the Lord, the Lord your God is the Lord's one. Love your Lord your God, saw your heart, mind, soul, body. Uh, say their prayers. So, again, then, of course, then they're intercessing for. So, if you want to put it in that language, too, priests draw near to God, intercess, and then be people the people of God, to the world. This is important for us to remember because in the New Testament, there's only one priest. There's only one priest in the New Testament. That's Jesus. That's from the book of Hebrews. I mean, the entire book of Hebrews is a defense of saying how there are no more priests in the primary sense. Priests are only in the secondary sense. But... Jesus is the priest who offers himself up as sacrifice. So he acts like the priest, but then he also is the sacrifice. So he puts himself on the altar or the, the, the cross, and he also then gives himself up in, uh, in priestly sacrifice. Now with that, though, there are no more sacrifices for sin because Jesus completes it all. It's done. It's done. There's no more reason for animal sacrifices. There's a great story by John Kleinig. I don't know if he's ever told it in Bible study before, but um, not him personally, but amongst the missionaries from Australia to um, some Aboriginal people. I I can't. I don't know if he ever even said it. But they uh, some missionaries met with the kind of the, the village council all night. And they had a long history of animal sacrifices. And the next morning, after the missionaries shared 
the scripture with them, they stopped doing it. They took one day, well, not one day, yeah, well, a long time. And you would sit there all day and they would just converse. And the, they were converted. And they stopped their sacrifices because, well, we don't have to do it anymore. Because Jesus has fulfilled all these. Even in their paganism, they understood that once things were fulfilled, you didn't have to do them anymore. So, um, so this is important for us, is that whatever this royal priesthood looks like in the New Testament, it can't replace that. It can't infringe on Christ's work. All right? So in 1 Peter chapter 2, you guys want to turn to that. 1 Peter chapter 2, the specific verses, but it's, it's really 2, 4 through 10. But the uh, specific verses are 5 and 9. So verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, so whatever the church is, they're, they're a spiritual priesthood, I mean, a, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices, whatever that means, but there's somebody's offering sacrifices. And in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So nine and ten is really paramount. That that's those are the real important two scriptures. But anyways, the thing is though is that if you take a look at four through ten, Christ is first. The you know the builders, you know uh, the the stone rejected becomes the cornerstone. The stumbling block now becomes the rock, um, and he. Peter says, you know, there are some who stumble, and he says, but you are. So the whole point, though, is that if there's any kind of royal priesthood in the New Testament, it's always in the secondary sense, all right? So do priests draw near to God in the New Testament? Yes, through the blood of the Lamb, through, through Christ, which, of course, then they draw near through prayer, right? That's why we pray in Jesus' name, amen, or the name of God. We, we don't draw near without Christ. And um, then are there sacrifices still in the New Testament? Well, not animal sacrifices. Sacrifices are completely uh, changed. Romans 12.1, I urge you, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice all right, so there are sacrifices, but never in the sense that you infringe on the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. So this living sacrifice that's mentioned in Romans chapter 12 is nothing that makes satisfaction for sin. It doesn't. But this living sacrifice is actually now becomes a gift or a benefit that comes from Christ's ultimate sacrifice. So Christ won salvation for us and gives us that salvation. And now we are living completely free. We have no debt. We have no more debt to God. So we live completely outwardly towards our neighbor. So the New Testament priests now 
offer a living sacrifice on the altar of their neighbor, which is defined pr precisely as loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's radically different than the Old Testament sacrifices, where you had an animal and you gave something, and it was, it was towards God. Now it's completely outwardly towards your neighbor. All right, so this is, again, so these are, these are unique things. But in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, I, hopefully the baptismal liturgy kind of resonated with you. There's a text we quote every baptism that comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. Amen, or I'm sorry, just before we say amen, we welcome you in the name of the Lord. <laughs> the pastor will quote from uh, verse 9. Well, we don't say proclaim his excellencies, but uh, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. We welcome you in the name. Yeah. Okay. So this is interesting is that this Peter text, the text about the royal priesthood, is inserted into our baptismal liturgy. And the reason why that is is because you're made priests in baptism. But priests in the secondary sense, that never infringes on the primary sense, so, so you always work from the primary priest to the secondary priest. And if you separate them, then that's where things get crazy. And in the Reformation, Luther saw a threat to that with the notion that there's still priests in the primary sense offering sacrifices, atoning for sin, and emulation, cooperation. I mean, there's a bunch of words. I think I got them all in there. Um, so this is why Luther's really important. I mean, Luther's really stressing this. Now, the thing is, is how he, he doesn't, his, his main concern is that things that are happening in the church are infringing on the high priest, Christ's work. All right? And he, he wants to reform that, not by replacing it with the priesthood of all believers, because then that, so what's happening right now is the papal priests are riding roughshod over the laity. And Luther doesn't want to switch it around because then he's just, you're just trading one papery. I think that the word, I wrote that down, that's, from, that's a word used in Reformation times. Popery, but it's not popery. Popery? Um, with another. So again, because priests in the Old Testament are collateral. So, because it's always about God alone, Christ alone not Christ plus something else. All right. But now we get into then, what is Christ doing as a high priest? Well, he's already given up himself as, as sacrifice. That's done. So now he's focused on preaching and the Holy Sacraments. He's giving those things because he's giving what he's done to us and we don't ever give something to him. You know, in the primary sense. It's always secondary sense. It's always after our receiving, do we give anything? All right, so that is, that's coming then. Now you got pastors versus priests. What's going on here? So this is the thing driving uh, even Argula von Grimbach, and we'll get to her in a second. So Lutherans believe that Christians may not be deprived of pastors. Every Christian needs a pastor, including pastors, because this is the way Christ set up the church in Acts. 
Now, what is kind of fundamental to the Reformation is the Lutherans confess that the Pope does not have the ultimate authority in making pastors, but the church does. And this is where things now get muddled up, specifically about what Argula von Grimbach is arguing. Because the critique for her and a lot of other Lutherans was that you basically take pastors out of the church and now you have the congregation equaling the church. During the Roman Catholicism at this time, you didn't have to have the laity in order to have the church as long as you had the magisterium, the bishops and the pastors. Or at least this is what Luther's getting at. But you need both in order to make the church. The church is the place where Christ is giving out his gifts to his people. And then how is that working? So the pastor and the congregation are collateral. Take one away and you fringe on the work of Christ. Whether that be literal or practical. Okay, now we get into Argula. Argula wrote her letter in 1523. Uh, three years before that, in 1520, Martin Luther wrote to the Christian nobility. This is a work in German, so she very well read it. Of course, she's acting as a Christian noble. Well, in this text, Luther links Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I didn't read that one, but that's the, uh, the body of Christ. The, you know, he talks about the different parts of the body. And then 1 Peter chapter 2. He argues that there aren't higher or lower Christians, but there's just differences of office and service. Now, he wrote it in German on purpose. Okay? And he wrote it to the laity because the papal priests weren't doing what, they, what was really theirs to do, preaching, baptizing, giving sacraments. And you hear this in Argula, right? I never read anywhere in Scripture of the church uh, hanging and executing people. That's not what the church does. That's the most extreme example. But uh, uh, within her critique also is, these, these pastors don't even preach when I go to church. I know more of the Bible than they do. They're supposed to know this. They're supposed to be preaching. There's, so you, you hear this. All right, so the thing is, though, Luther's appealing to the Christian nobility not to, again, eradicate the papal priests but to join in this calling back to what they're supposed to do, Reformation. This is really important. So he, um, now the thing is though, he, he calls the Christian nobility, he calls them spiritual since they all receive the Holy Spirit in baptism. So he's appealing to their baptism again. This is exactly what Argula von Grimbach does. Now this is where Luther's under, misunderstood because spiritual was normally reserved to the clergy. Those are the spiritual people. We're, we're kind of the carnal people. Laity's carnal, or, you know, t- works on it secular, and the, the clergy are spiritual. Luther, you know, disagrees with that and says, well, we're all spiritual because we've all received the Holy Spirit. Now, then he also speaks of both laity and clergy as priests in the Exodus 19, 1 Peter sense, meaning that they are to draw near to God and be God's representatives to the world. Through, through prayer and then living sacrifices. Again, he is not talking about being a pastor. He's really thinking biblically. All right, but of course, the word priest is normally reserved for the clergy. So now, I mean, 
you can imagine those who don't like Luther use this as against him in spades. But this is just a, a, a little text from the writing itself. All Christians are truly of the spiritualist state, because they're baptized. And there's no difference among them except that of office. Now, office, what does that mean? They don't, it's not that they, one guy works down the hallway from another guy. <laughs> the office is the place. Um, so God put you here, and then God put you here, or someone else here, no one's here. But they all are working together according to that little chart that I did before. So he puts him in a spot. But again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, okay, so as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that we are all one body, yet every member has its own work by which it serves the others. So this is a, there's no interest in executing someone for, for heresy. There's no, I mean, there's, there's no exercise of power. It's service. So this is because we all have one baptism, one gospel, one faith, and we are all Christians alike. For the baptism, gospel and faith alone make us spiritual and a Christian people. He's really arguing then for the Christian ability to say, hey, you've been baptized, you are spiritual, you are a confessing faith person, so you should do it. This needs to be done because no one else is talking. No one else is confessing right now. And of course, Argula, Frangerenbach's like, she's been, she's been freed by this message, right? Because she's been reading her Bible all her life, but yet she's had people to say, don't read your Bible, don't talk, don't speak. But she's like, ah, this, is not, this isn't working. This just doesn't make sense to me as I read the Bible. Luther comes around and says, yeah, absolutely. Again, he, again he's not talking about pastors. He's just talking about regular Christians. Everyone has a voice. Everyone is, and, but of course then, it's for service. It's not about power. And that's really important. That's a big difference. Okay. But in this work, he, he, so he, he has to, he, he does mention three kinds of priests. But you got to work really hard at it. It's, it's not until the next text where things become clear. But, so there's the papal priests, they're the ones who are not doing what God's given them to do. Rather than preaching and giving up the sacraments, they're more interested in their property, their money, their position, um, their power. Anything that undermines that. And this is why Argula can't let the Johannes Lansuit get away with this. is because he, if people say, if she simply remains quiet, then she's going to affirm this, um, this, you know, this power. But that's not, that's not been given to him, and it's not according to God's word. All right, so the, the, the next priests are the office of the holy ministry. Those would be kind of faithful pastors doing what God has given them to do. And then the priesthood of the baptized, and that is where the phrase priesthood of the baptized comes in. It comes from this writing of, uh, to the Christian nobility. And that's just by, by Christians, congregations. But again, if you, if you work under the Exodus 19 perspective, they're all collateral. I mean, the last two are collateral. The third one either needs to be cut off or reformed. And of course, he's, he's trying, to, trying to reform the, uh, the magisterium. 
but he's calling on the Christian nobility to do it because the Christian nobility has the, the uh, opportunity to do it. Right? They're the ones who have their own Bibles. They're the ones who have the education. There's the ones who have the money. Those are the ones who have the lands. And they can then utilize those uh, tools to serve the gospel. Um, yeah. Krista. It's the political... Um, uh, a polit- political um, opponent comes in too. Well, what do you mean exactly? You know that that um, uh, at that time Germany was so uh, divided. Right. Yeah. So there, there, he's yeah he's a smart guy. Martin Luther is a smart guy. So he you know he's taking advantage of the the, uh, the the politics of the time because even though there was this emperor, the emperor needed these. Um, Rulers, so like Frederick the Wise, he needed these electors. So the electors who, but also electors are trying to get out from underneath the emperor. And this is one of these ways. So Luther's, yeah, he's, he's a smart guy to utilize the politics of the time. But you have someone who's like Arguela von Grimbach, who, whose nobility is, is just, uh, she's not interested in using this for personal gain, but towards the gospel. Not everyone was like that, though, <laughs> as you know, any other Christian who might be in political power. They might use their faith for political ends and not so much for faithful ends. Um, all right, so then in 1520, uh, Martin Luther wrote the Babylonian Captivity, but he wrote this in Latin. So most likely, if Argula von Grimbach heard about it, it would have been digested from uh, Andreas Osiander, or Spalt, you know, these other guys that she was in contact with. But it's important for us to, to understand because of all the terrible critiques then of Argula. All right, so, so based on the, the, the writing to the Christian nobility, one could see, one could uh, misunderstand that Luther is trying to eradicate or cut off the clergy from the lay people and say the lay people are, this is what the true church is. But again, it's just a misreading of Luther's writing. But then in the Babylonian captivity, he writes this in Latin. He's mainly writing it into to theologians. All right, so he has this great quote then, very similar to what he's written earlier. How then if they, that's Luther's opponents, are forced to admit that we are all equally priests, as many of us have been baptized, and by this way we truly are, while to them it is committed only the ministry and consented to by us. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we're all priests by virtue of our baptism, and they, though, are of the ministry, of the office of the holy ministry, and, what is it? and consented to by us, meaning that it's the church whole. So every pastor that's put into a congregation is, is done by the church as a whole. So consented to by us means that everyone who's a pastor, even those back, you know, back then, it's not just the Pope that puts them there, but also it's this us, and that would be the church. That's what Luther's uh, advocating here. But of course, if you're, in, if you're in power, especially in the Roman power, you know, this, is, this seems to be undermining that. If they recognize this, they would know 
that they have no right to exercise power over us. Um, the word for power is this like imperial. In what has not been committed to them. Okay. Except insofar as we may have granted it to them. So if they have any power, it's because we all agreed, hey, you know, you gotta pay the bills or you gotta you gotta do this. And then he quotes second or first Peter chapter two. All right. In this way we're all priests, as many of us are Christians. There are indeed priests among or whom we call ministers. They are chosen from among us and who do everything in our name. That is a priesthood which is nothing else than the ministry. Thus, 1 Corinthians 4.1, no one should regard us as anything else than ministers of Christ and dispensers of the mysteries of God. Okay. Luther speaks of the three sorts of priests, one who, uh, the one who fringes on Christ and the two who are faithful. So the papal ones infringe. So they, Luther's talking about how they're very imperial rather than gift-giving or benefit-giving. So power displaces gift-giving, which means that it creates top people, bottom people. And when you create top people and bottom people, and enough bottom people realize that the top people are persecuting them, what's going to happen? They're going to explode, and they're all concerned about making themselves the top people, and it creates another bottom people. Of course, this is Antichrist. So then you have the, the pastors of the apostolic ministry. That's why the ministry in the quote from the Babylon captivity is capitalized. It's a, it's a specific ministry. It's the, the, the preaching and the giving out the gifts. But these, these pastors are given to in order to give. So their authority as ministers is when they are giving. So pastors have this authority in giving, which means baptizing, preaching, forgiveness, sins, Lord's Supper. This is what they're meant to do. They aren't meant to uh, lord things over people, whether it be property, money, um, any of that stuff then is incorporated into the giving, to the service of the world, which, which then comes into contact with the priesthood of the baptized. Uh, baptized Christians have direct access to God through prayer and God's word. Their consciences are not bound by those who infringe on that primary priest. So this is what Argula Wengerbach is exercising in spades. But some people think are attacking. She's just simply saying, I'm free to do this because you are infringing on Christ's work, and so I'm not, I'm not obligated to listen to you. In fact, what does she want from them? I mean, the number one thing she's asked in every time. Well, yeah, not only listen to, but what? Jesus. <laughs> Respond back to, right? Show me from God's word. So she's actually asking them to do what they're supposed to do. So she knows that through her prayers and God's word, but she, she knows that they are there to teach. She's asking them to teach her. Now, again, it might be in a very confrontational way and a very kind of, but... She uh, is saying, hey, I've, I read the Bible this way. Tell me if I'm wrong. Show me from God's word I'm wrong. Because what are they using as authority? They're not using God's word. What are they using? Well, an office would be a, I wouldn't say the word office. I would say their position, because I want to distinct between a true office and a false. Their power, right? 
threat of violence, threat of um, uh, taking their money away. Yeah, this is not this is not the church. So she's asking. She just wants them to do what they're supposed to do. I mean, and I think that's so that's so inspiring for everybody who might be in persecution of any kind. Because when you're in persecution, you really just want to win the fight, right? <laughs> it's pretty normal. You want to win the fight because you're, you're being beaten up. But she just wants God's word to be proclaimed. It's good. It's really good. All right, well, anyways, so again, the other thing is, is that then another writing by Goat, Goat Emser. He actually comes around a lot in this time, but he basically says... Is that his real name? <laughs> it's how he's referenced. So I don't know, I guess, that's what I always thought. <laughs> I know. His name is You Are Not Loved. Yeah, right. Probably a family thing. But Luther, so he basically says, Luther's gotten rid of pastors. Everyone's a pastor. You don't need to go to church. You, you know, you can give yourself, you can baptize yourself. You can give yourself Holy Communion. And then he just simply says, First Peter has nothing to do with the office of the Holy Ministry. I did not say that all Christians are churchly priests. I mean, I don't know how else he, you can get it. So then he goes, you know, it'd be really great if we didn't call pastor, or the people in the office of the Holy Ministry priests because it's a confusing word. And so that's why, like in our tradition, you know, I'm called pastor, not, I'm not called a priest. It's too confusing if you know your Bible. So this is where he gets into all the different names for clergy, um, the main one being pastor, preacher. All right. But rather than their name, the most important thing is, is the gospel and the sacraments. He never, Luther never wants to get away from that point. All right, and God gives gifts through the ministers. And that's important because that's in the Book of Concord. I didn't want to get too far. I probably have gone too far into depth in this. But um, uh, the Augsburg Confession, which Argula von Grimbach was present or in town for, I don't think she was an audience. The Augsburg Confession is when the Lutherans went before the emperor and read, hey, this is what we believe these are the things we all believe together, whether you're Roman Catholic or Lutheran. And then here are the things that we have problems with that need to be really reformed. But the one that they actually... So you have Article 4, which is on justification. Christ alone. We don't participate in salvation. We receive salvation. We don't, we don't do anything. We don't infringe on the primary priest. And then the, the right after that, it says, in order for this to be given the office of holy ministry is created. So in order for, for this word to get out, God gave the church pastors to preach, give the sacraments. So, but the thing is, though, um, so the clergy are there to give this gift out. But in order to give, you have to have a receiver. Again, there's co- collateral. And... Um, but when the pastors no longer are giving the gifts that they're supposed to give out, then they exercise this power and they're no longer ministers. And so they can be held accountable according to God's word. It just makes sense. But this is a great Lutheran thing. 
is that Lutherans weren't interested in eradicating things, but reforming things. So you can apply this to a variety of things. I would apply it to, I apply it to families quite a bit, like when um, it's usually adult children of parents who haven't been good parents. The reaction is, I don't want to have them for parents anymore. I want to cut my relationship off with them. And that is actually not faithful to this relationship. But as, as, as Christians, we would say, don't eradicate your relationship or annihilate your relationship with your parents, but call them back to faithfulness. Say, hey, you weren't a good dad to me because you beat me up. I forgive you. Here's your chance to be a good dad. So there's always hope. But that's exactly what Luther's working on. You weren't very good at being pastor. Now's your chance. Let's repent and come under the authority of, of Christ in his word. So th- this is all on the back of the line. So let's just skip down to the end. We're way too far. If, how does this fit in with Arugula von Grimbach? Does she advocate having the laity over the clergy? I don't think so. Does she advocate having no distinction between clergy and laity? No, not really. I mean, again, this is, she doesn't really even deal with these things. Does she call back the papal priests to preaching, teaching God's word? Yeah, kind of, sort of, pretty much, right? Uh, how does she understand herself as priest? She's baptized. And how does her example inform women's place in the church today? Well, I mean, any one of, any one of us, including me, even though I'm not a woman, could follow her example in depending upon our baptism to speak God's word. The Holy Spirit is guiding us. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We have God's presence in our life. So, I mean, I, I think it's, it's awesome. Yeah, she's very faithful. Uh, she was included in the Book of Martyrs. I don't know if you saw that in the beginning, that little introduction because of this. I, I, I mean, she's very inspiring. I, I, I really like her, and as Nancy said, you know, I like, I read the poem last night, or I mean, uh, yeah, yesterday afternoon. And again, I think it's so funny. Mm-hmm. I giggle. <laughs> I think it's so good to read. So, yeah, Krista. I have only a question. Um, do you accept then um, female theologian? Well, it depends on what you mean. Yeah, I know. So here's the thing is that people are going to make this about the office of the Holy Ministry, which is not what Argo is talking about. So that's a whole other subject that we will get to. However, let's not use Argula out of context. That's, I mean, this is part of my, I studied history in college, and the thing that drives me nuts today when I watch the news is how people rip history out of context and then, and then anachronistically judge it as if we're better now, we know things more now. No, let's, let's keep everything together and be critical on this. Let's not use history for our own personal purposes. So, um, and this is why Johannes Lanshut, who uses 1 Timothy, which is about how the qualifications of a pastor, he takes that out of context and applies it to Argula, which Argula is like, I'm not even talking about being a pastor. What are you talking about? I'm not talking about being a pastor. I'm talking about being a Christian. But again, of course, you got to think about it. He's using this as a weapon. 
to discredit her. He's not even taking what she's saying, which again is a great sign that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Which, I, I mean, just that's why I love her response. It's like... I'm used to women expressing anything. I mean, they're used to women getting... Well, and, but, but and again, this is why the fundamental point about Argula was, listen, man, I got, I got other things I got to do. But since no one's talking, I guess I got to do this. I mean, I love that introduction. She's like, man, I was quiet for a little bit, but man, you know I have a house and kids to take care of? And this is kind of the, kind of the running joke with a lot of like, people, I mean, especially women at this time, uh, is like, listen, I mean, they're not the guys who, I mean, and this is a credit to them. I mean, I wish you would, you know, there's guys over at the beer hall drinking, right? And they're sitting at home. They had enough time to deal with this stuff. It shouldn't have to take me to, to do it. And that, that, that also then colors when they say, you know, a woman comes and does this. It's not like, oh, women are so silly and they don't know anything. It's like, yeah, it, mothers are busy. And, you know, women are busy because they got to do all this stuff. So, you know, you, you got to... But you got to keep that in the back of your mind too now because today is different, right? I mean, there's a lot more balance... I mean, not enough, but I mean, there's still, I mean, men still, I mean, men are doing more in the home than history's past. I mean, ages past. I mean, for, for the men I know that are husbands, I feel like, yes. Um, so, so it's not quite exactly the same. But the idea, and, and I think that's, that's, that's important too, is like, I mentioned Lizzo last week. I know nobody knows. Some of you might know who Lizzo is. But <laughs> as, we, as we find strong women for our daughters to emulate, we need to find faithful, strong women and be able to, to talk to our daughters about uh, distinctions, differences, and this idea of collateralness. Because a girl should never feel uh, weak or second class because she's a girl. Yeah. But that does, I mean, again, I always just go like, you know what? I, I don't wake up in the morning and say, man, it's not right that I'm not a mother. And a mother shouldn't wake up in the morning and be like, you know what? It's not right that I am not a father. I should be a father. No. So that's the point is that a husband and wife, a father and mother are collateral. And I think that's like the, the best image for all of us as we kind of see our life together in general is that the, there is distinctions in this office or this position, but they should never be over and against each other. They are always collateral. And that's why I like to use that word from St. Alured of Revaux because he calls Adam and Eve collateral. But again, they're different and they have different, different things they do. But if you take one away, that's not good. I mean, think about all the deadbeat dads in the world. I mean, you take dads away, this is what you get. You know? I mean, well, again, so you all come underneath the God's word. And, but as you explore God's word, you realize, holy smokes. There's a great richness for each one of us in our lives together. And we have to then learn to be content with what God gives us. And then that's a whole other issue. 
because then we see somebody over there and we want that for ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, Luther, I think, wrote the book Christian Freedom. Yeah, right. I wonder if it's still in print. It's a oh, absolutely. In fact, I didn't even, I didn't deal with that, Donna, but uh, uh, on Christian Freedom or the Treatise on Christian Liberty, the variety of ways it's, it's uh, uh, titled. Um, this, I'm sure she read that book too, because this is also underlying her understanding of, of being baptized. Yeah. Um, if you haven't read it, everyone should read I think I felt like we read it a long time ago here, didn't we? Uh, on, on Christian Freedom by Martin Luther, Treatise on Christian Liberty. I feel like we did. It would have been over 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I think I was like when I was first became a pastor. 13 years ago, maybe. Maybe we should do it again. It's still around. Um, yeah, so anyway, so next week, we're going to read about nuns. <laughs> um, and, and, and the reason why, uh, again, this, this actually has to go with what I just mentioned about understanding our, our history as Lutherans. And the sadness of the fact that we, these are part of our, as Lutherans, this is part of our history, and yet we don't know it. And, and the thing is, is that if we knew more about our faith and those who go before us, we might have a richer life together now. And I think that's really important. So I'm not advocating for nuns or anything. I'm just advocating for a richer understanding and, and listening to them. So well, we're talking about strong role models for, for girls. I mean, that's what our gila is. Whoa. I mean, I've never heard of her. I know. Now, and it's like, why can't I learn about as a girl? Yeah, so here's the thing is that uh, this is the book I got the translations from. It's, it's her major letters. We didn't read all of her letters, just the, the two writings. Uh, the rest of them are very, they echo the same things. So, but if you want to ever purchase it, you should. Nice little introductions to each letter. It does get a little repetitive just because she keeps banging on Matthew chapter 10. I am baptized. Yeah, so. But. She was reporting that yeah, it's great. So anyway, so, so, um, so yeah, so we're going to learn about these nuns. The one in particular, which we'll do in two weeks, is Anna Sophia of Quendelenburg. She, uh, we're actually read some, like one of her meditations. She has a, a 478-page meditation on Jesus, which I think is really interesting. Um, but we won't read that. We'll read only 10 pages or something like that. So, and then after that, we're going to do some poetry and hymns, like I mentioned in chapel. Elizabeth uh, Kruziger. I don't even know how to say her name. I say Kruger. It's not even close to the way it's spelled, but I say Kruger. Yeah. So then... Um, yeah, so then we'll, we'll take a look at poetry and hymn writing, and then hopefully Betsy will come in with the de- deaconess. And then uh, we'll move on to a book of the Bible. So, all right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.